0: Thanks for joining me, Pete Holstrand, for the Credentials Only podcast where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Michael Svitkovic, president of the Ottawa Blackjacks in the Canadian Elite Basketball League. Michael actually began his career in sports communications before he had even graduated from university.
1: After several stops in media roles, he had loftier ambitions. Despite spending a lot of my career in communications, I, I really wanted to get uh, an understanding of, of the executive suite, what's, what's on the management side, outside of pure communications and PR. The grass wasn't always necessarily
0: greener. And Michael opens up how he handled being fired from one of his leadership
1: roles. I went and saw a business counselor, for lack of better terminology. And the first question he asked was, he said, I want you to name me five people that you've looked up to in your career. You know, of the five, he says, OK, so of those five, how many have lost a job? And the answer was four. It was fascinating. Through all his work, Michael feels his roots in
0: communications have been very valuable.
1: You know, the communication background came into every decision I made, uh, you know, I, I, and, and everywhere I, I go. And whether that's crisis management, understanding how the media works, internal communications, HR, which is, you know, it's, it's a huge part of, edu- of communications. And so, you know, I, I think that uh, I constantly drew on it. Throughout this episode, it is clear that above all else,
0: michael values relationships as a key to his success
1: you know but i think we we live in a world that is surrounded by you know communicating through 140 characters and um you know and and that person-to-person relationship is still the most important before we get started please take a moment give us a rating or review wherever you are listening
0: as always don't forget you can visit credentialsonly.com to see show notes for this episode to get more information on what we discuss without further ado Please enjoy this conversation with Michael Svitkovich, president of the Canadian Elite Basketball League's Ottawa Blackjacks. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. I want to start at the beginning of your career for a selfish reason because it really parallels my own experience of working for your alma mater in sports information shortly after graduating. What was your experience? Where'd you go to school? And then what was your first gig?
1: Yeah, so it, it is. First of all, it's, it's great to, to chat with you, Pete. Um, you know, at York University, which is is one of the largest universities in, in the country, it's uh, situated in, in the north side of Toronto. Uh, and uh, I studied there for sport administration uh, and did a work study position within the the sports information uh, office. And and interestingly enough, you know, despite at the time being the third largest institution in the country, they didn't have a full-time SID Uh, and, you know, and, and sports information in Canada at the time was very different than what you would have experienced, you know, in the South. And, and so for us, the communications department within the varsity programs were responsible, not just for, you know, varsity hockey but you're responsible at York for all 32 varsity teams and and so you know I, I it was really interesting because it gave a, a wide range of, of knowledge of the sport so I did a work study uh, program um, through the academic uh, the kinesiology and health science and then my boss went on long term sick leave and so she was gone for six months and they said hey do you want to fill in I'm like Sure, it's it's where I want to go, uh, and so they they let me fill in for the six months, and then she came back, and they finally decided the university needs a sports information director, and I got the job. So I actually didn't graduate, uh, you know. So I I wound up being the full time sports information director for the third largest institution in the country. It was kind of it was kind of hot. So so um, and I'll talk about education a little bit later. I went back and got stuff. So it's uh, I'm not quite as dumb as I look. But, you know, the the university really gave me, you know, an, an opportunity to to look at 32 different sports. And I need to know about badminton and water polo just as much as I need to know about basketball, football and hockey. Uh, and then the other half of it was, was it wasn't just the varsity programs. But then I was also having to be the communications person for the School of Kinesiology and Health Science. So now you're writing, you know, alumni newsletters on biochemistry and and athletic therapy and things so I think it really helped broaden uh, my understanding of uh, the communication side particularly in sport and wellness
0: I have to ask you to indulge me on this one because this is one of my favorites in all the sports world what's the nickname of the sports teams at York University
1: yeah so now you're you know you're just Put the salt right in the wound right when we started oh no so at the time so at the time we were the yeoman and uh, yeah and, the, and yeah and so we were the york yeoman the last british guard to the king uh and there was only there was one d3 school i think in california that were the yeoman so if you think of the beef eater on the cover of the gin bottle that's a yeoman and uh, and at the time they were going through a name change Uh, And I almost lost my job because he had all these, you know, hardcore old school varsity basketball, hockey, you know, the football coach had this great pep talk about the Yeoman and they changed the name to the Lions because they wanted to be gender neutral. And so not only do they go from this great historic name of Yeoman to the Lions, but then if you look at the logo it looks exactly like the lion king like i'm surprised that he didn't get sued by disney that's crazy so yeah thanks for uh, paul, paul jones longtime raptors uh uh play-by-play uh personality and i actually mark jones espn mark jones is his brother uh we he's a he's a yeoman as well and uh, whenever someone brings that up it's just it's the knife in the heart i apologize i was unaware of that change that's that's yeah, tragic because uh, right. that was that's an all-timer
0: right there yeah it took about oh. five
1: years of therapy to get rid of that so that was- <laughs> So communications
0: work followed you then, and and you went to the Raptors that you mentioned, and then to Tennis Canada, which is interesting because you're with a a team in a very well-established league like the NBA, but then you transition to uh, the governing body for a sport throughout the nation – but specifically working on the events and, and some major events that they put on, not only the tournament of Rogers cup, but also doing Davis cup and fed cup yep. and things like that. How would you compare working communications in that team setting to that governing body and events based organization?
1: Yeah. Great, great question. Um, you know, I, I think the um, you know, when, when I was at the Raptors and I was there during the height of Vince Carter and Vin sanity and uh, and the Chris Bosch days. And so Went really well in the first couple of years, and then and then we were high draft uh, lottery picks uh, after that. But you know, I I think the the transition over, uh, you know, it, it allowed me because of Rogers Cup, because of the two events in Toronto and Montreal, and Davis Cup and Fed Cup. It still gave me that being a part of a professional event, but then also understanding the role. Uh, you know, that communications plays outside of just your typical PR media relations, uh, you know, component that now we're talking about internal communications and crisis management, um, government relations as well, you know, and and so, you know, when I, um, and you'll hear the name John Lashley a few times, John Lashley was was my VP uh, at uh, the Toronto Raptors. And he said there weren't many places in Canada that he would send me to after the Raptors, uh, Tennis Canada, Golf Canada, uh, funny enough, Curling Canada uh, and, and Hockey Canada. And the reason for those four, because the capacity, peat of those organizations are large enough because they have a revenue generating major event. So, you know, in, in Canada, a lot of national sport organizations get their money from the government, a majority of them. And their success um, dictates how much money they get from the government. And, and so, you know, because Tennis Canada has the Rogers Cup and golf has the RBC PGA stop and hockey has the World Junior Hockey Championships, I mean, these are all major revenue uh, driving uh, properties that help fuel the development, the federation side of the sport. So, you know, without Rogers Cup, there wouldn't be a Milos, there wouldn't be a Dennis, there wouldn't be a genie, there, you know, so, so, so that's uh, the interesting Uh, correlation between the two. Uh, Michael Downey is is obviously, you know, well, um, you know, a mentor of mine. Uh, He was at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Uh, He was with the Raptors, you know, when they started. And so uh, he he knew the type of individual that, you know, gets um, brought up through that, you know, organization. And so um, so the the move over for me was 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 pretty seamless. Thanks to that. When you're working with the team, it's day in,
0: day out based on their results. And then there's a rhythm to the season. Then there's the off season and, and things are pretty well organized. Um, Whereas for the governing body, you know, there are little tent pole events, but then there's that one major event, Rogers cup, was there a transition for you and just how you worked and how you lived to go from that 80 game season to that 10 day event?
1: Yeah. I think the, the hardest thing was not winning and losing anymore. I think, you know, you had Davis Cup and Fed Cup, sure. You know, but being pissed off on the plane after a loss, or being in the locker room after a win, you know, uh, those are the things that you you miss. Um, you know, but we wait. My wife and I, we waited till we left the Raptors and came to tennis Canada before we had a child. You know, because I was seven days a week, and you don't play, you practice, you don't practice, you travel. You know, and um, and and certainly during the latter years of of my six seasons in the NBA we weren't a very good team. And so, you know, the off season was busier because now you're bringing in high name D one guys that are draft eligible. And so that off season, you know, is, is, uh, is a lot more um, concentrated in, in hours again. So it, it you know, it, it certainly uh, you know, was something that, that weighed heavy, winning and losing was, was the biggest thing I missed, uh, you know, but, but I think um you know, being able to still have Rogers Cup and understanding the global aspect of it. And I think, you know, at the time, the NBA, you know, Commissioner Stern was just, you know, the the Yao Ming era, right? So it was just starting to come through as really a global brand. So for me, that transition to Tennis Canada, um, you know, that really opened up my eye, you know, working with you and the the gang at at the ATP and the WTA and the ITF and every other alphabet, you know, that we've got, it, it it allowed me to understand a global sport just as basketball was just on the cusp of that.
0: It's also a pivot though in the storytelling that you're able to do because you you're with these guys with the Raptors, you develop a rapport and yeah. you get to know them and get to have really intimate knowledge of how you can work with them to tell their story. And you get to the Rogers cup scene. Yeah. You have your Canadian stars, sure. and Dan Nestor and, and everybody right. who's coming through, but, the majority of players from the tournament aren't that international field and they're dropping in for a minute, you know, and some right. of them may play one match and go somebody's going to play five matches and leave with the title, but you don't know who that's going to be. Yeah. So how do you manage that pivot in your storytelling to really capture as much as you can in
1: that 10 day period? Yeah, well, well. First of all, it's a, it's a reason why you've got a jersey in your office, right? The relationship the relationship with the league office is paramount, right? I mean, and you know, and um, you know, without without guys like you and girls like Gina and Bell, I mean, they they were it was really important to to get an understanding of yeah, everybody wants to talk to Serena and everyone wants to talk to Roger, and you know, but but trusting you. And say, you know, I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast, but trusting you and saying, hey, listen, I know you want, I know you want Nadal, you know, but listen, Feliciano Lopez is going to be way better for this in the Spanish speaking community because, you know, he's really good in this environment and you're going to get more out of him. So so that relationship, I think, was, was really, really important for us to be successful. And I think it puts pressure, it put pressure on, on PR people like yourself to come in because, you know, here's Toronto, you know, one of the largest metropolitans and certainly the largest in the country and the most diverse getting an understanding of, you know, with, with all due respect to maybe some of the other stops in the States, this is a really big market. And, and um, you know, and, and we had a little bit of that in the early days in the Raptors trying to tell people we weren't an outpost to the North Pole. You know, we were the fourth largest media market in North America. And so um, so I think that relationship and, and you taking the time to understand our market and knowing that, you know, the, the big names are going to get some headlines but we could also do some really fun media things in cultural situations and working with the Russian media or working with the Spanish media. And so I think, that's where, um, I think that's where we saw success. You left tennis to go back to basketball. What was your next stop? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. Yeah, I think um, I, I really enjoyed my time at Tennis Canada. And I would, I would still say to, to this day, despite now being president of a professional basketball team, it's probably my favorite career stop uh, you know I think having Michael downey um, you know trust in me to to do some things that were um, different than your day-to-day comms PR person you know the fact that I I got to be the press chief for Canada, you know, in 2010 in Vancouver, I started my own radio show, and which is now still running with, you know, other people. And, you know, we were the first federation to live stream a Fed Cup, Davis Cup. Uh, so you know, we got to do some innovative things. I really, I really appreciated that. Um, but I also, despite spending a lot of my career in communications, I, I really wanted to get uh, an understanding of, of the executive suite, what's, what's on the management side outside of pure communications in PR. So I, I did go back to basketball and, uh, and was the executive director of Ontario basketball, which is our provincial or state governing body. You know, the, the, uh, the structure of sport in Canada is a little bit different. Every, uh, every province or territory has a, a governing body where all the clubs kind of feed into. And then there's Canada basketball is the, the national governing body. So, uh, so I so I left Tennis Canada and it was really it was really difficult because you know, I still have people there I keep in touch with. And, um, you know, and, and I really um, you know, went, went from going to Beijing and London to going to, you know, Thunder Bay and North Bay, Ontario. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I needed that experience. I needed to manage a complete staff, to um, manage a budget, to report to a board of directors and, and, uh, and, and learn a lot and try and grow. You did a lot on the business front during your
0: time. A couple I know were a a long-term facilities partnership, but then also bringing events into town and and hosting the, the FIBA qualifying event in addition to the provincial championships, which are obviously a big deal within each province and territory. As you were learning to take on those leadership roles, how much were you able to draw on your past experience, both in communications, but also in
1: events? Yeah, I, I I really think that um, while slightly biased, and I know the the company I'm keeping would agree, but you know the communication background uh, came into every decision I made, uh, you know, I, I, and, and everywhere I, I go, and and uh, and whether that's crisis management, understanding how the media works, internal communications, HR, which is you know is it's huge part of edu- of communications, and so you know I, I think that uh, I constantly drew on it. And, um, you know, we had a couple of situations where we had to deal with that were pretty sensitive and and you automatically go into crisis mode, right. And, and it allowed you to, um, to deal with things strategically, you know, to be able to, um, you know, manage the board as well to, to get them to understand and buy into things. And, and um, you know, so I, I, I think communicate without my communications background, it certainly wouldn't lead me to where I am today.
0: In going through that process of some of those business deals, the hosting and bidding on hosting and, and that facility partnership and working with other partners and sponsors and local governments, you know, what were some of the key business learnings that, that you made because you didn't necessarily come from that business side from your previous experience?
1: Yeah. And, and listen, I, I mean, I got fired from that job after three years. So, you know, I, I, I'm, and I have no problem sharing that story. You know, so so part of it is learning how to manage a board. Part of it is learning how to manage stakeholders. You know, at, at the uh, at the amateur sport level in Canada, we're so dependent on the government. We're so dependent on the government. So that is the most important relationship, you know, that I had to make sure that I I fostered. And, and, uh, you know, and so our, what we call seed money, kind of a, you know, annual grant money that goes to provincial sports. And a lot of it is based on participation numbers. So, you know, fortunate with Ontario basketball, because it's one of the largest, you know, most participatory sports, we got more grant money. Um, You know, and I think, you know I think as, as we went through the government relations was really good um, the structure and the, the I think one of the things I really learned is, is about governance you know, risk management and governance and and I know it can sometimes just be a, a gross word in sport but that's really at the amateur level that's everything and we're learning now with organizations you know what's happening in the states with gymnastics and there's you know cases here you know in, in other sports as well whereas if you don't have good governance strong risk management policies you know then unfortunate things, you know, can, can come through the system and you're not even know, and you're not equipped to handle with it and you're not um, protecting those that, you know, we're, we're trusted to protect, you know, so I, I think um, I think the governance part was a, a really big piece of it. You know, and I think looking back the, you know, I think the, the mistake I made and certainly made a lot, but you know, I think the mistake I made was I, I tried to run Ontario basketball, like Michael Downey ran tennis Canada. And, and, and I think, you know, if, if I kind of retrospect, yeah, it probably wasn't the wisest move because they our budgets weren't the same. Uh, and, you know, and, and while we had wonderful board members at, you know, the provincial governing body, Tennis Canada, you know, Roger Martin was the dean of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and, you know, top five business minds in all of Canada. You know, we had the president of Rogers Communications, you know, on the board. So we had these you know tremendously well-oiled business you know large business acumen leaders compared to a community basketball coach you know or a referee or you know uh, an alumni of a program but you know it's, and so um, and that's not suggesting that they weren't tremendous because because they were but they bring a different mindset and and so I didn't take the time I think to properly learn how to manage them uh, and so at an executive level, you know, you don't manage the board, right? You're done. <laughs> and so after three years, it was. Uh, but we created a, a provincial uh, um, headquarters, you know, that the provincial teams are, are still practicing and training in today. And, and so there's, it's a 20-year deal, which is going to save the organization millions. And, and so, you know, I think that we did a lot of really good things in a short period of time. Uh, but I think I've always had a problem with pace, and, and uh, you know, I probably came out of the gates too quickly and didn't really understand the environment, and and so uh, I certainly don't regret it. But uh, you know, that's that's business. And, and it sounds like you've taken the time though to kind of look back on it and learn from yeah. it.
0: How important is that as you make different stops in your career?
1: Well, you know, after after uh, that time, I um, I went and saw a. Um, like a a business counselor for lack of better terminology. And the first question he asked was, he said, I want you to name me five people that you've looked up to in your career. Yeah. It was pretty easy. You know, I kind of went through them all. You were six Pete. Sorry. You didn't quite make it. But, but but, uh, you know, of the five, he says, okay, so of those five, how many have lost a job? And the answer was four. Hmm. It was fascinating. Not because anybody stole money or anybody did anything illegal Board, you know, board decisions come and go, you know, priorities come and go personality clashes, you take some risks, you know, and, and and that was, it was really important for me to hear that, you know, and, and some of my, my mentors, you know, is exact same and, and, um, you know, and, and so I think taking that learning and that opportunity, and I, I had about nine months in between where I, um, where I did some consulting and, you know, and, and it was interesting You know, someone I, I worked with, Derek Strang, uh, former CEO OO at Tennis Canada. And you know, I remember having a cup of coffee with him and he said, you know, if you, if you had a crystal ball and you knew how much time off you were going to get, you'd make the most of it because you're probably not going to have that period again. And he's right. You know, I, I will most likely not have that time period again. So I probably would have done things a little bit differently because you're totally, oh, I need the next gig. Well, it's okay to reset. You know, if you've got a situation, fortunate enough to, you know, have a, a wife who's a senior executive at a university. So I, you know, I could take that time probably and probably have been a little more patient.
0: You got back into things with a, a pretty great opportunity, especially there in the local community with the Pan Am games. But I want to take a step back and start with your Olympic experience. Uh, Cause I think these major events tie together pretty well. Um, You said Tennis Canada allowed you the opportunity to go work the Vancouver games in 2010. What did you do there? And I'm struck whenever I talk to a Canadian who worked at those games, it just seems like such a prideful thing to have been a part of hosting those games in Canada. Is that yeah, the
1: same really, feeling for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll take a step back. I mean, the Tennis Canada first. They let me go to um, uh, to Beijing, so I, I was the CBC, which is our BBC, you know, the which the, the CBC's uh, tennis analyst for uh, you know for the Olympics. So here's a guy, PR guy, you know, and not like yourself, I'm not a tennis player, you know, and, and, and so I had to do a lot of. It was literally, it was almost a gag joke, you know. They, the CBC called and we're looking for people, and we're not quite sure. I said, well, I said, you know, I'm doing these. Davis cup webcast. He's like, oh, that's a great idea. Why don't, why don't you do it? I'm like, start the car, let's go. And next thing <laughs> you know, I'm in Beijing for a month. Um, and and so, uh, so I think that experience on the media side helped me. You know, and so being a part of the games in Vancouver, yeah, I was, um, so I was the press chief for Canada for the Canadian Paralympic Committee. So, so um, the coolest part was I was fortunate enough to be, I was the last person to march. So I got to march into the opening ceremonies, but I was in Canada as the host country is the last one. And as the press chief, nobody want, nobody cares about me. I'm at the back. I was literally the last one to march into the games, you know, with 70,000 people. And that was something I actually, it was so crazy and noisy I called my wife. I forget even what day it was. I'm like, I'm standing in the middle. I'm literally at the end here. This is, it was crazy. Uh, you know, and, and I think just, uh, you know, it, it showed, you know, Canadians are are proud Coast to coast to coast where, you know, we're proud to host people, you know, and, and whether it's Vancouver or St. John's or Nunavut, you know, when we get people in our community, you know, that's they're, they're considered ours. And so I think that was something that was really, uh, really great to see. And, and being on the Paralympic side was 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 really special as well, because you just learned, you know, this isn't just, um, you know, a, you know, a charity event for people who are missing a limb these guys and girls are world-class athletes that would kick most people's ass. Like, you know, and, and so just to see the, the strength of these people and downhill blind skiing, you're like, what, you know, and it's just things that just blow your mind. And so I think you really saw the human spirit in sport and just, um, and I think those games took the global parasport movement to an entirely new level. The Pan Am Games was your next stop for work. Uh,
0: the 2015 Games were in Toronto. Very basic question: What are the Pan Am Games? Who's participating?
1: Yeah, re- great, great question. And 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 maybe just maybe a little clarification: I didn't actually work for the games. I was uh, a part of the senior management team that um, that was tasked to manage and operate the largest. Um, Sport infrastructure uh, facility in, in the country's history. So it's about you just scooped my next question. <laughs> oh, darn! So 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 it's two hundred fifty million dollar venue, and so it was fifty five percent of it was funded by the federal government, and the other forty five percent was split between the two owners of the venue, which is the University of Toronto uh, and the City of Toronto. And, and so we were a separate for-profit organization co-owned by the city and, uh, and, and, um, the university to manage and operate the venue, uh, before the games, during the games and, and now as part of its, its legacy. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, was, I, I took that opportunity because I think while, while obviously we had, uh, Rexall center, I don't know what's called now where scan Canada as Rogers cup, um while we had a venue, I was never really part of a true day-to-day major venue management. And, and I felt like that was was probably the last piece of, of kind of the circle that I really needed to, to, to get an understanding of. Uh, and so, um, so it was great. There was seven of us. We had offices in a trailer, I had to wear hard hats watching this thing be built. Um, we opened uh, a few months before the games uh, and then to the public and then closed during the games. And so the Pan Am Games, similar to the Olympics, it's just the Pan. Am, it's it's it's, uh, it's this side of the world, basically. So North and South America, uh, and um, and so summer games, and and the opportunity to have multiple sports. So in at the Pan Am uh, Center where we were working, we had swimming, diving, um, badminton, uh, one of the martial arts. Um, I'm missing a couple, but we had we had seven sports uh, of you know of the 50 or whatever that were hosted and it was for toronto it was the largest international sporting event uh that was housed there so it was a bit of a um uh it, you know it wasn't 2010 it wasn't the vancouver games uh but for toronto you know it was the next best thing and you mentioned the
0: legacy impact of that it now it, it still exists and it, it's oh, yeah. still uh know, yeah, i think the canadian sport institute of ontario is based out of there and, and so to see that continue on as something you kind of help get off the ground it has to be gratifying five years on from the games
1: oh absolutely and listen our our first our first goal pete was that it, it couldn't be the white elephant in the room. like it, it had to be uh you know this this is the largest investment that government has ever made in a, in, a, in a venue and so it was really important for us the challenge for us was the the multiple stakeholders in the venue so you know that it, it wasn't uh, you know the University of Toronto. They they had a student referendum, so there was actually money from the student tuition that went towards you know which was tremendous. You know leadership on behalf of the student body. Um, you know they so they were part of that. Then you had the city of Toronto, and so and so part part of it to sell the kids and the students was this is your house, right? Well, yeah, it's your house, but you've got roommates, so it's not just belonging to the University of Toronto and the city of Toronto. You know it's your municipal swimming lessons and you know your open gyms and you know i don't know about the states but the sport of pickleball is you know exploding and you know in in canada among senior citizens so so the people in the community are thinking it's their building and then you had to your to to your point about high performance and the high performance people as part of the federal funding legacy they got access to things like you know the world-class diving tower and the three olympic swimming pools And then our job was not only to have the three of them work well together, but we also had to turn a profit. So we also had to turn it into, uh, you know, a, a, a fitness center. Where people can get memberships, so we're out there marketing for memberships. So learning to have those four really diverse stakeholders work together for the legacy of the building, you know, and 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 hats off to the to the guys and gals that are still there. Um, That's you know that's the uh, that's really the legacy I think, and and so they've they've set it up that it's um, it's going to be there for a long time.
0: In your role with them, you were advising on marketing communications, and there was you know getting memberships and whatnot, but for the most part who would you describe as your audience? Was it necessarily public facing or was it more kind of B2B going to these other entities and and helping message things to the university and to the local governments?
1: Yeah. And and I think that's a, that's really astute of you. I think it's, it was both, you know, there was a lot of internal communications and meetings with the university and the city. And, you know, we were responsible for the frontline staff, right. The walk in the door and there's the red shirts and welcome to Toronto Panama sports center. And, and, um, so we would, our sales staff would try to sell the general public a membership when they walk in the door, but the city of Toronto wants them to pay just the $2. If they're a city of Toronto resident, go pay $2 and go swim once a week in the community you know, pool. Well, oh, wait a second here. Do you, want a rev- Do you want revenue or not want revenue? And so there really was a, a feeling out process there and then working with the high performance groups where you know, they would want the Olympic pools at high uh, you know, at, at popular times. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you know, our fitness members who are paying a lot of money want it at that time as well. So there was a lot of, of understand of meth, internal messaging, certainly a lot of B2B, um, even simple things like, you know, rebrand the rebranding. Uh, you know, I don't know if my wife can hear me upstairs, but, you know, the bureaucracy of, of post-secondary institutions and the bureaucracy of municipal government trying to work together on deciding what color scheme of the branding for this thing, you know, was incredible. And, and uh, you know, and, and so those are the things you're dealing with in a conglomerate like this. Uh, you know, so I think that comms background certainly helped.
0: Legacy was a big part of your next project. So was hosting a major event. What did you do next after this pandemic? Yeah, I
1: was, you know, and and I, and I wasn't really looking and it was one of those options. I'm a, I'm a five and out kind of guy. I like to go in and, you know, see, see an organization that, uh, you know, I've, I've never really been part of an organization at its peak. I've kind of been at the, at the foundational part, you know, try to, to uh, create a strategy of longevity and then get out of the way and, and let smarter people take it to the next level. Uh, it's kind of the case at York university at the Raptors at tennis Canada. Uh, and, and so uh, while working at the Toronto Pan Am sports center, the athletic director for the university, who's a buddy of mine uh, was uh, sitting on a board to, um, uh, to try and host the North American indigenous games in, uh, in Toronto in 2017. Uh, and they needed a general manager and um and, and so we had a good long discussion about it. Um, you know, I was leaving the security of a full-time gig to taking on, you know, a short-term project. Uh, and um, and I wound up taking it. And, you know, I, I think, and while I talk a lot about the amazing um, people at Tennis Canada and the fact that it was you know probably my favorite career stop, you know, probably the most um, eye-opening as, you know, as a privileged white male, you know, was being... A privileged white male who was the general manager of the North American Indigenous Games. And it was the first time uh, in in the Games' 30 year history that there was Indigenous and non Indigenous leadership. And and so you're in the media capital of Canada uh, during a time in our country of reconciliation uh, with the Indigenous people of of this country uh, and and putting on a Games with 5,250 athletes, uh, $12 million budget. Uh, and instead of, because they were supposed to be in the States and, and whichever tribe was, was going to host, uh, wound up canceling kind of near the last minute. And so, um, the city of Toronto, the province of Ontario and the federal government stepped in to save the games, which is great, except for, I was hired one year and five days out from the opening ceremonies. Uh, and so with no staff, you know, with probably a third of our, our, um, our rooms, maybe a third of our venues already booked. So, um, it was, you know, it was probably the, it was the challenge of my career. There's no question about it. Uh, but, but really eye opening. As a communications
0: person, you're probably as sensitive as anybody to the value and the importance of words and what you say and how you say it. And to go into such a culturally sensitive situation and have to hit the ground running, I imagine there was a very quick onboarding process to understand the. Probably very deep and nuanced relationship that the indigenous people have what did you do to get up to speed on that and to as much as anything respect them and and not trip over your own feet
1: yeah i I did that a lot uh, and and I think that it um you know it, certainly with without uh without ever bad intentions but it natural that I was going to make mistakes i I think you know, I think that communications background, you're right, Pete. I think, you know, that really helped me early on. You know, I um, I, I sat in on 142 interviews in six weeks um, for our 14 full-time staff uh, before I even before I even started on day one. And you know, and, and it might seem like I'm micromanaging, but it was really important um, that we were able to proudly say the me- to the message that we had indigenous people in every level of the organization. So we had a CEO who was, who was an indigenous female. Um, she was the face of the games. You know, she was she was the the public speaker and and everything. Um, you know, so right from the top down in our, in every level of our organization, we had an indigenous person, uh, and uh, and we interviewed six people for every position. Two of them had to be indigenous, and and so that was kind of first and foremost. You know, I, th- I think going to some indigenous communities and and not being allowed to speak. You know, I think it was. For someone for someone like me who likes to talk, you know, it was really interesting, uh, you know, to to understand your role, to get a better sense of the history. Uh, you know, there was a um, there was a commission uh, years ago called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, and it, and it looked at the atrocities to Indigenous people, you know, throughout time in in our country, and came through with ninety four uh, recommendations. Uh, to, to help in this period of reconciliation with the Indigenous people. Uh, and uh, the 88th recommendation has to do with sport, sport wellness and wellness and in specifically uh, the North American Indigenous Games. So for us, it kind of became a bit of a, a rally cry. But, but I think the, the moment for me um, and, and Richard Petty, uh, who's the former CEO of, of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and the, and the Toronto Raptors, you know, he always said to us, if you want to lead, you've got to smell the popcorn. You've got to you got to go out in the community. You've got to know who you are representing. So in February of 2017, uh, we were fortunate enough to to go visit um, one of uh, one of the remote communities. And also, not every Indigenous person lives you know in on a reserve, but there are many reserves still you know throughout North America, and uh, and so we traveled to uh, to a place called. Um, uh, Pekanchicum first nation, which is 2,250 kilometers from where I'm standing right now. Um, so for your American friends, I don't know, what is that? 1,700, 1, miles. So I had far. to fly it from, far. it's far It's still, <laughs> and still in the province of Ontario. So, so my outlaws live in Naples, Florida. It's almost the same distance, wow. right? So, so I had to fly to Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba um, rent, and this is in February. Uh, rent a Jeep Cherokee and drive nine and a half hours north, north uh, east, back into northern Ontario. The last two and a half hours uh, were first on what's called winter roads. So, so the the uh, the reserve that we visited, uh it's a flying community. So you're surrounded by water. So remember, this is February. So driving through winter roads, which is essentially you're driving through the woods that don't have a paved road, but instead have ruts from trucks going back and forth. So you're literally driving in the woods and then the last half an hour, you're on a lake. And I don't know if you've ever done that. I know you're from the north, but I don't know if you've ever done that. But, you know, literally driving on a lake. And so you open up the sunroof just in case you hear a crack uh, and you're driving half an hour and, uh, and you get in. Uh, Pekanchico First Nation is 3,000 people. 75% over the age of uh, under the age of 18, and in 2014 was the suicide capital of the world. We landed to a suicide, and we left to a suicide, and we were there six days. Um, just you know, $14 for a stock of salary, because the only the only way you can get in is flying in in the wintertime or, you know, or flying in in the summertime or driving on the winter, uh, on the winter roads. And, and it was really I think, for, for me and my staff. Uh, I think it certainly, it, it helped us understand what we were working towards and how sport and recreation can play a role in first reconciliation and understanding the sports in the, in the indigenous world, but also, um, but also really helped us, um, you know, understand just how how lucky and fortunate we are. because uh, This is in our own damn province. Like this isn't Ethiopia. This isn't Kenya. The, you know, this is in Ontario, Canada. And you know, my poor my poor daughter. When I got home and she didn't finish her vegetables one night, you know, I just I went off because you know it just it was life changing. You know, and and um, you know, and I think that trip for our staff really helped us. Um, with the intensity of what we we're doing, it was pretty heavy. You know, I mean, yeah, it was a sporting event, but it, it was a heavy year and a half. And, and I actually continued on for, for about another year and a half working with the indigenous sport group. Um, but it, it weighed on you, uh, a lot and, and just understanding actually, you know, that's arrogant of me even to say, you know, cause you don't understand. Yeah, you know, you know, seven generations of of being, you know, of, of being abused and and um, and moved away from your homes and whatnot, and you know, and, and I'm hearing more and more uh, understanding and recognizing of it in the United States now, which is is really good. Um, you know, there seems to be a little bit of a turning the page in, in understanding. Uh, you know, I think probably Black Lives Matter has had a lot to to do with that in, in understanding all all of the underserved uh, communities. Uh, you know, but for here in Canada, it really Um, you know, it's something that's even, even yesterday, you know, our prime minister announced that they weren't able to meet their five year, um, promise of drinking water of safe drinking water for indigenous uh, reserves and communities. And, and I know Flint, Michigan and has issues as well, but you know, it's, we're in north america and this stuff's happening so you know it was uh, it was pretty eye opening but the games were the most successful had the largest uh, legacy uh, because we were in toronto we were able to draw attention to such a um, you know an important uh, issue and cause in canada uh, but it was a wild ride for sure
0: the legacy piece was important especially in year the year and a half after the games the games themselves were only one week uh, but I, the games legacy plan doesn't have a time limit? What was it that you guys were striving to achieve and how were you able to help do that in your time after the games concluded?
1: Yeah, good question. And I think, you know, legacy is a term that, you know, gets thrown around a lot, particularly when you're talking to government because they want to prove that their tax dollars, you know, went to a good cause. Uh, That being said, you know, we, we really believed that legacy started, in the preparation of the games, we were creating a legacy as we were building into the games, and, and, and I spoke about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and, and number eighty eight specifically dealing with uh, the these games. So our marketing campaign was Team eighty eight. So everywhere you looked, we had a Team eighty eight patch everywhere we went, and that kind of became you know our, our mantra for for the games and after the games. And so to be able to create uh, legacy events, they're they're now hosting you know an international uh, an, an international masters. Indigenous games, uh, as well, and and you know I think the important part around this was it's the culture side of it is more important than the sports side of it. So yes, they were playing basketball and they're playing volleyball, but you know the three is the gifts from the indigenous people: lacrosse, um, archery, uh, and uh, and canoeing. You know of of these these type of international sports. Uh, you know were really entrenched in in the cultural side uh you know of of sport and so we spent a lot of time not just putting on sporting events but having a powwow and having you know music, musical acts you know that portrayed you know the, the various you know diversity there's more than 600 indigenous different indigenous um uh, communities and cultures in in canada alone and so really celebrating that as well um and we did that uh, after the game so being able to stick around and and have some legacy events like the international masters games, you know, I think um, kept it in the forefront and I think they're hosting another one next year, which is great.
0: You got back into basketball and, and into your current role. Now in 2019, the Canadian elite basketball league had its first season. And shortly after that season concluded, an expansion franchise was announced and you were announced as the president of that expansion franchise. What led to, that team getting announced and how are you finding the work as president in that lead up to a first season and we'll get into the weeds of what happened in the first season but just the lead up of starting that league or starting that team as an expansion franchise in such a young league what was that like yeah
1: well you know i i I mentioned john lashway before you know so when i was done the indigenous file which was about three years um i gave him a shout just kind of checked in and and said i'm not sure what i'm going to do next yet but you know just let's, let's grab a coffee. And he says, well, actually I'm helping launch Canada's, um, first domestic pro basketball league. And so John Lashley was my VP at the Raptors and, and remains a mentor. So, uh, he said, well, why don't you, I'm, I'm launching the Hamilton franchise in 2019. Why don't you come out and, uh, and, and help, you know, cause there's not a lot of NBA. I think there was three of us, four of us that worked in the NBA that are helping launch this league. Uh, so, so I, um, you know, would do the, uh, the, the daily drive. We're about, uh, about a hundred miles, uh, from where I live to Hamilton. And, um, uh, and we had the, and we had the league, we launched the league. We, uh, we launched the team, uh, continued to work with him and then the league office in the off season. So I helped, uh, create their strategic plan, their, their business and operations plan and, um, and their postmortem of, of year one. Uh, and, um, and very quickly an expansion franchise uh, opportunity came in, in our nation's capital uh, and uh, our commissioner Mike marielli who's a, a former professional football player uh, he um, gave me the torch and so here we are uh, during a covid uh, season but uh, but it's pretty great to have professional basketball you know in, in Ottawa because there's a million people in our nation's capital that deserves to have pro basketball
0: and it's a summer sport um, so you're kind of you're not going butting heads with hockey season and yeah. um when the nba is going as well so as you're building out that franchise I, I think it's always interesting to hear how things start so what are some of the particulars for you as a team president in getting that team off the ground i mean were you involved in everything from logos to mascots and and all that to even finding all that, the that yes
1: yeah. So we were fortunate on the venue side. So, so this league, and, and one of the reasons why it's been successful to launch um, it, it is a single owner entity. So, so there is basically one guy that owns all seven teams. Uh, and, and, and the, the reason why we've been able to be successful in my opinion, again, it comes back to people um, they created a centralized um, Kind of resource center. So the league office, different than other iterations that i have tried in this country, they do everything from um, payroll and travel and accommodations, um, the branding. So I worked with the league office and we created the Black Jacks brand, the or our Black Jacks branding, in you know uh, a weekend uh, as we kind of happened at the last minute. Um, so so that really allows the teams to sell tickets, sell local sponsorship, uh, to uh, work with the community. And and put a basketball team together and and not have to worry about some of the other things that obviously at the Raptors we would have to do independent. And and so I think that was a a real key uh, opportunity. Uh, and so for us, uh, we had a great partnership locally with uh organization called Ottawa sports and entertainment group. Uh, they're kind of like the MLSE, you know, in, in our nation's capital, they own uh, the CFL team. They own the Ontario hockey league team. Uh, and, and so they've got a beautiful 20,000 seat football stadium. They've got a 10,000 seat arena where we play. So we have a partnership with them playing out of that venue. Uh, but my first, you know, kind of combining my past experiences, my my, my first phone calls were to the community basketball clubs because I need their buy-in. Uh, you know, you, you can't ask community to support you if you can't support the community. Uh, and then local tourism, municipal government, you know, so who were going to be the key stakeholders to really help get this thing off the ground. Uh, and so uh, we started, uh, I was named in November. First staff started in January and uh, and away we went. So we're just coming up, to just finished our first year.
0: Yeah, first season was supposed to tip off in May, and come mid-April, there was this pandemic, and that did not go as planned for the first year. How did you guys as a league adapt, and has there been an an impact to you as you've tried to get these relationships in your community to have to go play a season, unlike any other that anybody's ever played anywhere?
1: Yeah, you know, I think again having that centralized, you know, we're we're really all. We're all one team. You know, the only time I really don't like the other six teams is the 40 minutes that we're playing. You know, and, and so our, you know, um, Fraser Valley success is Ottawa's success, and I, we really mean that. Our GMs talk to each other constantly. You know, this is uh, this is how we will grow uh, as uh, as a league. Um, and and it's funny, it comes back to communications again. So John Lashway and myself really worked closely with the commissioner's office on a back to basketball um, plan. So I, I co-chaired the, uh, the CBL's back to basketball strategic plan that, uh, you know, took a lot of FIBA, the international governing body, along with the world health organization, and then our municipal provincial and federal, um, policies on, on COVID, uh, to put together a plan that we presented to all levels of government to, to return. And so we were the first professional sports league to return in Canada. Uh, we, um, not really a bubble in the NBA sense. It was kind of a quasi bubble. Uh, But the fascinating thing in working in this is, is every region in every province in the country has their own policies. And so you really had to understand locally how it might've been. So in Niagara region, where we wound up playing our first season in the the summer series uh, was very different than some of the policies we had in Ottawa. Uh, So coming first out of the gate helped, it allows a lot of pressure, but we had a te- national television audience. We were in, also in six different countries, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Uh, you know, so we, we were able to take advantage of it because of the fact that it was a concentrated um, you know, season. And, and I would probably argue that while we would have loved to have played in front of Ottawa fans at home in, in TD Place, I think as, a, as a, an expansion franchise and in a league that was just playing in its second season, uh, you know, we probably got more bang for the buck, uh, in this situation than if we would have had a, just a normal regular season.
0: Throughout all of this, you've talked about the importance of communication and relationships. What are some tips, advice you'd give to people as they're building their network, as they're making those connections to strengthen them without, you know, exploiting them, I guess, for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, it sounds corny, but authenticity is just is is huge. And and um, you know, you, you you speak at a college class, and next thing you know, you've got twenty five requests on LinkedIn. Well, you know, it's not really how it works. You know, make re- reach reach out if you can. If you can make that, you know, if you can make an authentic connection, great. Um, you know, but I think we we live in a world that is surrounded by you know communicating through one hundred and forty characters, and um, you know, and and that person to person relationship. Is still the most important, and, and I would, you know, I I'd stand here and say that um, you know managing people is the hardest but most rewarding part of my job, and and it, probably the hardest thing for anybody to do. And so you know I think that interpersonal relationship with stakeholders. There are some people that maybe I'll send a note to twice a year, and that's it. You know, there's a couple of them from Tennis Canada. You know, Adam McDowdy, the head of of, of Tennis Development. We connect twice a year. How's the family? Miss you. Hope everything's doing well. Keep in touch kind of a thing. Um, and there might be some time where he needs me or sometimes where I need him, you know, or, you know, the John Lashway relationship. And I, I uh, he helped, uh, he actually helped do the media training session for Carl Hale, uh, tournament director for, for Rogers Cup. I brought him in, you know, when I was at Tennis Canada, we kept in touch and now he's a president of Hamilton and I'm a president of, of Ottawa. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting full circle. So, you know, I think the, the, the role in communications and, and it, uh, how it allows you to understand each facet of the organization and then how you communicate to people, I think is, is the two keys.
0: In leadership roles, you're getting a lot of input and and the more information you have, the better, and especially to make people feel like they are engaged and, and properly have their seat at the table. But at the same time, you can run the risk of getting overwhelmed and getting too many inputs. How do you strike that balance?
1: Uh, well, I think first and, and foremost, I am a big fan of bringing people in and getting as many um, even contrasting views as possible. Uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, while I'm while I'm, while I'm a stubborn guy at the same point in time, you know, I can be pushed off the penny. Absolutely. And, and you know, if it's for the right reason and, and understanding the long game, um, but that's also why you put together strategic plans. That's why you have, company values that's why you do operational plans and budgets does it align or doesn't it and if it doesn't it's a pretty easy decision and if it does okay well now how can we make that work how does it fit you know and and um you know Richard Petty again at, at CEO at at MLSC, You know we it, it was it was almost like a cult. We had to know our mission, visions, and values every, every staff member uh, because it's how we lived. And, and and you see organizations, particularly through the pandemic, you know ones that have strong strategic plans, one that had good good people with good values, and I hate to use the word, but can pivot. You know those are the ones that have been able to succeed throughout this. And the the CEBL has certainly been one of those examples. You've done
0: a lot in sports. You're no doubt a sports fan. Do you find though, now that when you go, you're kind of distracted from the game because you're noticing and observing all the operational things that are going on outside of the court or the field?
1: Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And, and um, you know, it's interesting. I, I had a chance to work at the Leafs, you know, which here is, is in this country obviously is is a big deal. I turned it down because my PR director, uh, Jim LaBombard at the time, who I was working with, uh, who's now at the NBA head office, he was considered one of the best in the league. And I didn't want to lose that, that mentorship. Um, I've never worked in baseball because I, while I had an opportunity, I'm a hardcore Yankees fan. And, and it's the only sport where I can still go to your point and, just be a kid, you know, eat, eat my popcorn, drink my beer, you know, have my, have my feet and bring in my kid, you know, it's just some great things. And so it's kind of the only one left. Um, you know, I, I'll follow my Buffalo bills, uh, you know, just, uh, just because of, of growing up uh, across the, the bridge from, from Buffalo. But yeah, it does change. You know, you look at things differently. And, and I think, in, and you would probably agree with this because you're on the PR side, you know, I was at the Raptors, even though everybody knew where my paycheck came from, we were never allowed to cheer. You cheer in the locker room, you know. So, you know, my wife always makes funny. I kind of, I, I've lost that—not the passion, but I don't get excited, you know, Right. because because you can't. Maybe there's a little fist pump under your desk, you know, if, if someone hit a game-winning shot. But it's different here than it is in Europe, as you know better than I do. You know, I mean, there the media cheer, you know, it's a totally different world. So yeah, I, I've lost it. It's uh, so that's why I still have baseball. I close every episode with the
0: set pieces. It's a half dozen questions for all of our guests
1: and I'm going to fire away at you with them.
0: What are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning?
1: You know, I think time management, I know when you interviewed Katie a couple of weeks ago, I I, I really related to it. It's tough to find that time. And so I kind of look at it in three different. There's, um, you know, what can I do to learn or understand kind of, you know, industry best practices. So a a sports pro daily would be a great example. Here's here's a a few things on tech. Here's a few things on venue management. You know, um, what's the latest trends in, you know, wearables, whatever. Uh, And then what's important for my business? So for me, Ottawa tourism, you know, so, uh, understanding how auto, local Ottawa businesses are coping and trying to then eventually recover from COVID. So there's the local piece. And then for me, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a wannabe cyclist. So bicycling newsletter, actually, it's just called bicycling, uh, it's bicycling magazine, but bicycling newsletter, I get it every day. And there's just that one little tidbit each day where I'm like, Oh, okay. That's pretty real. That's pretty relatable. Um, those would be probably the three, uh, you know, so, so moving forward progressively, what helps me now in my role, um, and then what's for health and wellness. Social media wise, what
0: are your most valuable follows? The posts you don't want to miss.
1: Yeah. I, I don't really have one to be honest. You know, I, um, I have Twitter. I don't have Bookface or Instagram or any of those other ones. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my daughter's a big TikToker, which I just don't get, but anyways, um, uh, you know, so I have Twitter and I, and I, I have forever, but I really stepped away after a while, Pete, cause I just, I found I was, I was going to be too reliant on it. You know, I was watching it too much and, and, um, you know, I have to check out oh, what did I miss? No, you know, so I don't have any notifications on my phone, none at all, other than text messages from my wife and my daughter. Um, you know, I've WhatsApp for, you know, for my staff communication, but, but on social media, I just, um, you know, I, I have LinkedIn cause it's, the thing to do, business wise, is probably important, uh, and I and I have Twitter, you know, probably more so just to see what my staff is doing, team wise. I, I kind of, I don't know, I I, um, I I certainly recognize its importance in business and personal brand growth, but I kind of had to take a step back from it for a while. What are a couple of books you would recommend that people check out? So personally, I'm a I'm a David Baldacci, John Grissom guy. So you know, if I'm If we're away for a trip or we, you know, go up to our neighbor's cottage for a week, I'll bring a few of those books up or support a local business store. Uh, But I mentioned Richard Petty a couple of times, the CEO of of former CEO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. He now owns a bookstore, which is kind of kind of odd. But anyways, um, so his book, 21 Leadership Lessons. Uh, is, is really good he did another one on I think it's called uh, my dream job uh, in 2013 it talked about his role as CEO but his leadership lesson one is really good uh, you know I think it's an easy read it's got some great uh, understandings of his successes and his failures and I think you can certainly learn from both what are you streaming aha uh, funny enough my wife and I were totally into um House of Cards, and then when it ended, I didn't need another one because House of Cards became your um, presidency uh, in the United States. So I just watched CNN a lot, uh, and uh, and as that's winding down now, uh, we start to get into the Crown. Funny enough, what's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Whew. yeah, tough one. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Fort Erie, which you know, population I think still is twenty three thousand, border town to Buffalo. Um, so, uh, you know, t- talked before about the yeoman and, and not mentioning that name, uh, you know, ever again. But um, four Buffalo Bills Super Bowl losses in a row is is probably a close second. Uh, you know, it was it was pretty special times. Even though we were Canadian across the the bridge, you know, we were we were adopted Buffalonians, and and um, and so we we felt every painful loss. Uh, so I, I would say that probably those those four was you know just really had a big impact.
0: Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Yeah. I,
1: I, I really, when you, when you mentioned that to me uh, a while ago, I, I oh, man, I've got a box, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's in, an, uh, our, our storage room. I don't have all of them. I've got, you know, I think like yourself and you would have, you know, 10 times more because of your tournament travel. Um, uh, I kept the important ones, you know, the Olympics, my NBA draft, you know, I was the draft guy for the Raptors. So I would go there when we drafted Chris Bosh and just happened to be the year that LeBron James and Dwayne Wade were drafted. I've got my grand slam ones, you know? And, uh, so I think I have the ones that, um, I had my first one, which would, which, uh, was the 1997 Vanier cup. So the Vanier cup in Canada is kind of like the Rose bowl. So it was you know, kind of college football championship. Um, you know, I think other than that, you kind of have a look at it. Yeah, it's probably, I don't know, 50, 60 sitting there. My daughter once in a while will look at it and you're old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, nice, I am. Thank you.
0: Nice reminder of that. Thanks, Good. kid. Uh, I hope you grounded her after that. <laughs> <laughs> Not Michael, yet, but it's coming. <laughs> thank you so much for the time. It's great to hear about all these different roles you've, you've had in sport and just some of the common themes that have really Taking you through all these different experiences. Thank you so much for sharing that insight. My pleasure. Great catching up. Many thanks to Michael for his time on this episode. It was great to hear how all his experiences have really built upon each other as his career has progressed. Thanks also to you for checking out this episode. Don't forget, show us some love, leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Also, you can head over to credentialsonly.com for show notes about this episode, but also you can leave us your email and we'll slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Thanks to Mike Miche for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.